Well, open up your Bibles, guys. Like I said, we are trucking along in the Gospel of John. We are going to be in chapter 12 uh, this morning. Uh, still going through chapter 12. It's been a few weeks now, and we got a couple more weeks to go uh, in chapter 12, but open it up there. We're going to be at verse 27. If you don't uh, have a Bible, uh, if you forgot yours today, we've got a bunch uh, at the back desk, so run out there, uh, grab a Bible. If you don't actually own a Bible, um, we want to give you one. So you can grab one from the back desk, just these white paperbacks. Um, you can keep that. It's our gift to you because um, this is what we do every week here. We just open up the scriptures. We take a, a chunk of it, a passage. We walk through it and we apply it to our lives and see what God wants to say to us in that. So you're going to need a Bible. Uh, flip there, John chapter 12. Guys, one of the most uh, powerful experiences that I have had in my life happened uh, a number of years ago when I was on a missions trip in Ethiopia. Uh, so what we did is we sent a soccer team over there uh, that I was part of, and we just went from town to town, uh, city to city. We flew into the capital, Addis Ababa, and we just drove around in a bus from there, and we did soccer camps uh, in these different towns and cities, and we played games against local uh, like semi-professional teams. We weren't very good, uh, but we played against local teams, and we would just look for opportunities as we did like building projects and uh, clean water projects and things like that. We would look for opportunities to connect with the community and the culture through soccer, uh, and then to share our faith in Jesus with the people there. Uh, that was our mission. Um, but we had to be pretty subtle uh, and tactful about the way that we went about sharing our faith because a lot of the cities, most of the towns we were in, uh, were predominantly Muslim places. Uh, so we had to be very tactful about speaking the name of Jesus and sharing the gospel and sharing Bibles and scripture and things like that. Um, so we went town to town. It was good. Uh, but then when we came to the end of the trip, uh, final city that we were in, final game that we were about to play, uh, we didn't think much of it. It was going to be, you know, just another game. But what we didn't know is that the people in that city, I think they thought we were like a pretty high-class professional team. And so they brought out their like division one professional team. And they had been advertising this game in the newspapers and on the radio and television for weeks. And so we show up to this game. It's like this rundown old stadium. Um, it looked like something out of like an old like World Cup you know, Coca-Cola commercial or something like that, just like run down massive stadium. We thought there was going to be like five people, 10 chickens and three goats like there usually was. But we, we show up there and we're about to warm up and start the game and people start to flood in. They start to flood in, flood in. By the time we're kicking off, 10,000 people showed up. Literally, there's an article written about it. 10,000 people showed up. And, you know, up to this point, we had to be really subtle, really tactful about our faith and why we were here. And we're about to start this game. And literally, there are armed guards with automatic rifles, like, guarding the stands and guarding our bench in case things got out of hand. Like, they thought we were good. We were not good. And we go to kick off, but we, we walk to center field. And I'm with uh, my two buddies, Taylor, the guy I camp in Santa Barbara with. You've heard a lot about him. And my other buddy, Paul, who's leading the trip. And we're standing at center field. 10,000 people looking at us. They bring a translator to the middle of the field. They hand us a microphone over the PA system, uh, hand it to my buddy Paul, and they say, tell us why you're here. And so Paul's looking at me, and he's like, dude, what do I do? Like, there's probably mostly Muslims here, and they got guns, man. <laughs> like, what do we do? And I'm like, dude, you got to just go for it. You got to share the gospel. This is why we're here. And I knew that because like he's speaking. So if they're going to shoot him, they're going to shoot him and not me. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, you got to go for it. 
but it's, it's that moment, right, where we're faced with that question. This is our last game. This is our last stop on the tour. We have a captive audience of 10,000 people who don't know Jesus. What's the last thing we want to leave with these people? This is our last public opportunity to do what we came here to do. What are we going to leave with these people? And Paul, I was so proud of him. He just, he looks at these people and through a translator, he shares the love of Jesus. He tells them, this is why we're here. We are here because we love your country and we love God and we believe that God loves us and he loves you. And this is how much he loves you. He gave his one and only son to die on a cross for you that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And it was just this moment. We were looking at the faces of 10,000 people just hearing about the love of Jesus for them, because that's why we came. In our passage today, Jesus is in this moment where he's at the the Passover festival. So it's this massive Jewish uh, feast, this massive festival, people coming from all over the place, massive crowd, it's packed out. And this is actually the last public sermon, the last public discourse that Jesus gives before he's going to disappear at the end of this and go to be with his disciples until his crucifixion. So it's a few days, maybe two or three days before Jesus is about to go to the cross and he's standing before these people, this crowd, and he's faced with this question. Okay, it's the last public discourse. What am I going to leave these people with? And we just see in this passage, we're going to read in a second, we feel, we see the urgency in Jesus' voice as he proclaims what is most important. He's going to tell these people, this is why I came. He's going to reflect and focus their attention and our attention on the moment, the hour, he calls it, the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of the cross that is about to come because we cannot truly see and know and experience and savor who God is, his glory, his love, his power, his mercy, his goodness apart from the cross. And when we get that into our hearts, when we get that into our heads and we just let that sink in and we see who God is and how good he is, how glorious he is, how much he loves us, that is what is going to grip us and captivate us and transform us forever. So that's what Jesus is going to do. Let's read this passage together, starting at verse 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So look at that first verse, verse 27. 
Now is my soul troubled. Jesus is troubled, reflecting on the hour of his cross that's approaching. That word trouble, it means afflicted. It means conflict. It means inner turmoil. Why is Jesus sitting there reflecting on the hour of his cross that's coming? Why is he in inner turmoil? Some people say it's because of the the physical pain that he knows he's about to endure, and that is definitely part of it. The pain of crucifixion. He's about to go to a cross, be nailed to a cross, be whipped, beaten, stabbed through his side, endure all of this physical pain, but it's more than that. Because there are martyrs even in our time who have who've undergone worse physical pain for the cause of Jesus. People who have been actually crucified in our day and who walk toward that calmly, but we see that Jesus' soul is troubled. Why is his soul troubled? Because the reality of the cross that he is about to face, the torment of the cross, is not only physical, but it is spiritual. There's a deep spiritual reality and dimension to this. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is about to happen is Jesus is not only about to undergo the physical torment of the cross, but he is God. He is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, completely sinless. But in the moment of his crucifixion, what we just read, that reality, that truth is that he is about to become the sins of you and me, of all of humanity, past, present, and future. He's about to become and absorb all of the evil and the wickedness and the sin of all of humanity in himself. And in the moment where he is crucified, we read in the gospels that the father turns his face away because he can have no part of sin. And Jesus is about to become spiritually, metaphysically become our sin and have our sin in his body nailed to the cross and he is just troubled. His soul is afflicted thinking about that reality that he has perfect relationship with his father, but it's about in that moment to be broken, to be separated on our behalf as he becomes our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So we see my soul is troubled, but then look at the reaction of Jesus. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Father, take me out of this. This is going to be awful. Should I say, Lord, take me out of this? I'm not going to do this. No. Look what he says. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Look at the sheer determination of Jesus to not swerve from the plan, to not be sidetracked, to not be taken away. He is so determined For the glory of God, he's so determined for our salvation. His determination for God's glory and our salvation was greater than his suffering. Just let that hit you for a second. How desperately, how fiercely Jesus loves you that in that moment, knowing what he's about to face physically and spiritually, should I ask my father to take me out of this moment? No, this is why I came. This moment of the crucifixion, this is gonna be the culmination, the climax, the high point of all of scripture not only scripture, but all of history. This incredible moment in time and space where the rebellion, the wickedness, the evil, the sin of all of humanity and the glory, the goodness, the the mercy, the love and the grace of God are all going to meet at this time and this point in history. It's the culmination, the climax of the sinfulness of man and the goodness of God. And man, just let this, let this sink in for a moment because I know how this feels and I, I feel this often. This is what Jesus did for me. This is this, the, the, the raw determination that he has to go to the cross and not be sidetracked. This is how much he loved me. But then I think, I'm, and I mess up again. 
I screw up again. I fall into sin again. I fall to temptation again. And it's easy to start to think that, man, God probably regrets doing this. Maybe Jesus regrets going to the cross for me, regrets giving his life, becoming my sin, being crucified for me. But he knew, look at that. Just let that reality sink in, that he knew beforehand. He knew exactly what he was about to face. He knew the horror of it. He knew every single time that you would fall and that you would fall again and again. He knew and still that didn't sidetrack him that didn't throw him off, that didn't stop him from going to the cross. Jesus does not regret saving you. We can start to feel that way. We can start to think that way when we're in a low point, when we're fallen to sin and temptation again. He does not regret saving you. Jesus knew exactly what he was buying back on the cross. He knew and he went anyway. And just see the the determination, not only for, for our salvation, but for the glory of God. Look at what Jesus said But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. This is ultimately Jesus' mission. This is ultimately Jesus' purpose. And everything that he did, everything that he said, the reason that he came, he existed for the glory of God, to exalt and lift up the name of God. And just as a side point, just by uh, by way of a side point here, is that the cry of your heart? Is that the prayer of your life and the cry of your heart. Look at Jesus in his worst moment of suffering and turmoil and pain. He's able to say, Father, glorify your name. And I think that is a perfect example of how we are supposed to approach our lives. Because we go through it, man. We go through turmoil. We go through suffering. We go through struggle. We go through pain. We go through joys. We go through highs and lows in life is the cry of our heart through every single one of those things, the highs and the lows. Father, glorify your name. Get glory for yourself, Lord. In my life, get glory for yourself. When it's tough and it's hard and I don't understand why I'm going through this thing, this pain, Father, get glory for yourself. And just hear this, man. Hear this reassurance that God gives There are only three times that we read about in the Gospels where the audible voice of God actually comes down and speaks, right? There's in the baptism of Jesus, in his uh, transfiguration on the mountain, and then here, we get this, then a voice came from heaven. This is the reassurance of the Father, verse 28, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. How beautiful is that? That reassurance, Jesus, as he's in this moment approaching the cross in turmoil and pain, his soul is troubled. The voice of the father comes down and says, my son, I have glorified my name through your life. My son, as you've walked around, as you've opened blind eyes, as you've made crippled legs walk, as you've healed bleeding that won't stop, as you've walked around giving hope to the hopeless, as you've walked around giving life to the lifeless and and seeing the people that nobody sees, the downcast, the outcasts, the sinners, the tax collectors, the worst of society, as you've walked by and you've seen them and you've approached them and you've spoken to them and picked them up out of the muck and the mire, and given them life and given them purpose and meaning, I have been glorified. How beautiful is that? And I will glorify it again in the moment of your crucifixion as you go to the cross and pour your life out for the sins of humanity to make a way that that they may have life. I will glorify it again. And so now Jesus is going to point us, he's going to draw our attention to three main effects of the cross. And let's just be captivated by these three beautiful, powerful, glorious effects of the cross. The first one is that the cross judges the world. 
The cross judges the world. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. So this is crazy. This is ironic. The the people who uh, are listening to Jesus, they're going to end up uh, falsely uh, putting him through a trial and falsely accusing him and crucifying him, right? So in their minds, they have judged Jesus, right? They have morally judged Jesus. They found him guilty and they've crucified him on the cross. This is what they're going to do. But what Jesus is saying is as you do that, where you think you're judging me, actually that judgment that you think you're you're dishing out is going to end up being your judgment. It's going to end up being the cross is going to end up being the judgment of the world. How does this happen? Think about the cross. Think about Jesus lifted up, crucified on the cross in that we see just the raw, gritty reality of how devastatingly serious our sin is. Right? We can sometimes get so casual about our sin. We can sometimes think that, you know, that it's this picture one author gave that uh, we think God is just like the daft old uncle sitting in a chair and when he sees us sinning, he just gives us a little wink and rubs us on the head like, ah, you little rascal. Boys will be boys. It's fine. Right? We get casual about our sin, but it is impossible to do that when we look upon the cross because in, that, in the cross, as we look upon Jesus lifted up, crucified for us, we see that there is a very real and a very serious debt that we owe for our sin. We see in plain, raw, gritty sight just how serious our sin actually is. Our culpability, our contribution to sowing evil and sin and wickedness in God's good and beautiful world. That there is a very serious price that was owed for that. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death that that's actually what we deserve. You know, it's, it's like we sang today in that last song, right? My sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice, my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. We're not able to get casual about it. We're not able to think that it's everybody else's sin out there. We see the cross and we see in it rightfully so our judgment. It was my sin that held him there. It was my voice calling out among the scoffers. Right? And we sometimes, I think, we hear this word judgment, and especially in our culture, our, our day and age now, we, we really sometimes cringe at that. We hear the word judgment, and we ooh, get a bit of a wince. It's like, man, no one can't judge me. Ain't nobody going to judge me. Okay? Only God can judge me, and that, that's true. Only God can judge you. But we sometimes cringe at it, right? And we think, like, oh, I don't want judgment. Judgment is harsh. Judgment is wrong. Judgment is, it's judgmental, right? We don't want judgment, but we actually do. Every single one of us wants evil and wickedness and sin and bad things to be judged. We want justice, and I can prove it. Because what did you think to yourself in your head the last time you were driving and somebody cut you off really bad? Or somebody stopped short, or somebody made that crazy left turn in front of you when they shouldn't have, and you almost T-boned them. What did you think? Everybody shouted out. What did you think in your head? Right? You thought terrible things about that person. You thought awful, you wanted terrible things to happen to that person. If you're being honest, be honest, come on. You wanted awful things to happen to them. At the very least, you wanted a cop to see that happen and then pull them over, right? Or you wanted that thing where you see like the person next to you in another car saw it happen and they, they give you like the approval, like, yeah, I don't know, man, what is he doing, right? That gives you that little sense of satisfaction. But okay, this happened to me a couple weeks ago. I was in Cloverdale 
and a huge truck uh, was carrying one of those uh, big horse trailers uh, full of horses. I was looking at the horses. I was trying to like, hey, buddy. And, but I'm driving, and this guy's in front of me, and we start to go, and he starts to do that thing where he's like drifting a little bit, and you could just tell it was going to happen. I'm like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And of course, he did it, right? Just swerves into my lane, doesn't look, and almost kills me, and I have to slam on the brakes and swerve into the other lane at the same time. I lay on the horn, and I don't say any bad words because I'm a pastor, and, um, and, I, and I have to just narrowly avoid this crash, and I'm just so livid. But then there's that awkward thing where you pull up next to them at the light, right? And it's just like, oh, okay. And he was so nice. It was just this old man. He was a farmer. He had a hat on. It was, of course, Cloverdale. And he looks over at me and he's like mouthing, he's like, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? I'm so sorry. And I just looked at him and gave him one of these. <laughs> right? Judgment, no mercy for you. No forgiveness, right? We want justice. We want judgment. We actually do, but what we don't want is for us to be the ones that fall under judgment, right? We don't want a God who is not going to judge murderers. We don't want a God who is not going to judge people who traffic children into sex slavery. Right? We don't want this kind of God who can just sweep sin and evil and wickedness under the rug and pretend that it's not there. Right? We actually want judgment. We just assume that we're not going to fall under that judgment. But the reality is that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of of God, and we all fall under the judgment of God. But the beautiful thing about grace, the beautiful thing about Jesus, is that we actually read that He came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Look, at John 12, uh, this is going to be uh, next week or the next two weeks, we're going to hit this, but it says this I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge, them, ju- judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus came not to judge the world. He came to save the world by making a way for us to come out of judgment, by believing in what he did, what he accomplished on the cross for us. But what he is saying is that now that I have come and done this for you, I've made a way through my cross, through my sacrifice for you, you now have a choice. You can either choose to believe in that and have faith in that and come out under judgment, or you can choose to reject it, reject my word, reject what I've done, the way of the cross, and you can choose to rely on your own good works, which will come up short every single time, and you can remain under judgment, and now it's your choice. That is how the cross judges the world, because Jesus made a way through the cross for us to come out from judgment, but now we have to choose. And he's pleading with these people. He's pleading with us. Do not remain under judgment. Follow the way of the cross. Believe in me. Put your faith in me so that you come out from that judgment and can walk free. This is how the cross judges the world. The second thing, still in verse 31. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The ruler of this world will be cast out. The cross disarms the enemy. The cross disarms the enemy of the world. So we are told all throughout scripture that we have a very real enemy of our souls. Uh, through Revelation, he's called uh, the great snake, the great serpent, the dragon. Uh, he's called throughout scripture the ruler of this present age, the ruler of this world. And what we read in Ephesians 2 is this uh, scary reality. This is us before Jesus, before we know Jesus. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is our spiritual reality before Jesus, before we accept the finished work of the cross on our behalf. The reality is that we are actually enslaved to this ruler of the world. We're actually enslaved to, just like it said, to our sin. We're enslaved. We have no other choice. We are, we've lost our autonomy. We never had it. We are enslaved to do whatever our flesh and the desires of our bodies and our minds tell us to do in the moment. We have no power to resist temptation of the devil because we are a slave to sin. We are under the power of the ruler of this age. And the one real weapon that the ruler of this world has is the power of accusation. Accusation of our condemnation. So in the courtroom of heaven, Satan can look at God and say, look, look at that, look at that sinful person. He's sinful, he's guilty, he's fallen short of the glory of God. He is guilty and he deserves condemnation. And he's actually right. That's actually true. Because by our sin, we are guilty. We are condemned. And so the enemy, the ruler of this world, that is what he does. He tempts and he tricks and he deceives and he lies and we fall for it. And then he holds that guilt and that shame and that accusation in front of our face and throws it at us. But this is what Jesus is saying. The cross disarms the ruler of this world. Look at this beautiful reality in Colossians 2. This is what Jesus did. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The devil loves to take our sin, loves to take our guilt and our shame and throw it in our face and say, look how guilty you are. Look, you've fallen short of the law and its legal demands. What did this passage just say? This Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Satan thought that in the cross of Christ, as he was crucified, he thought that this was Jesus being defeated. He thought this was Jesus as he is actually crucified in open shame, nakedness, murdered, that this was the shame of Jesus. Jesus is flipping it on its head saying, no, this is how I'm actually putting you to open shame because now I've taken the weapon out of your hand. Now you can never condemn my people. Right now, the reality for every single person who believes in Jesus, who puts their faith in Jesus, is that there is, Romans 8 tells us, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more power of the enemy over us to accuse us. No condemnation. Paul says, who can bring a charge against God's people? Nobody. It is Christ who justifies. Who can bring a charge? Who can bring an accusation against us? Nobody. That is the reality when we put our faith in Jesus. The the ruler of this world is disarmed. No power to accuse us anymore. And so the question remains, if he has no power, then why do I still struggle with sin? Right? Because it's still a struggle. We're still tempted. We still fall into sin. There's still traps left and right that we can fall into. And it's this reality that, that the apostle Peter tells us over and over again. He says that the devil 
Though he is defeated, he is still around like a prowling lion waiting for an opportunity to attack. Paul tells us in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6 that you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the principalities of the unseen world. So armor up because you're heading into spiritual battle. Right? It's still a battle, guys. So this is the way I like to think of it. The devil used to have a sword, a lethal sword. Now he's still got a weapon, but it's a pool noodle. Right? He can't do much with it, but it's still a battle. He's still there. He's still there to trick and to tempt and to try and deceive and lie and destroy your peace and your joy and shipwreck your faith and shipwreck your relationships with people and with God and so evil and consequences in your life. We still need to be aware and on guard. Paul tells us over and over, this is a battle, man. This isn't peacetime. Once you believe in Jesus, it's not going to just be easy now, forever. There's going to be temptation you're going to get sidetracked. There's spiritual warfare. So you need to be on your guard. Man, some of us are so casual. We're so casual about our walk with God. We're casual about sin. But Jesus is saying it's still a battle. This is why Jesus in his Lord's prayer, what does he say? He, he says, deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, Father, but deliver us from the evil one because he's still there, the evil one, to try and trip you up. The difference is that we now have the power and the authority by the Holy Spirit in us and by the name of Jesus and what he's accomplished on the cross, we have the power and the authority to say no, we're no longer enslaved. Because the power of the blood of Jesus over us is stronger than the destructive cycles of sin and temptation that we have in our lives. It's strong enough to break those chains. It does break those chains, disarmed. So now the enemy has no power. He can't make you fall. He can tempt you, but he can't make you fall. You used to be a slave to sin, to the temptations of the body and the mind, but we're no longer enslaved. Romans 6 tells us you're no longer a slave to sin if you're in Christ Jesus. That's why James tells us, James uh, 4, 7, he tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's a coward. He has no power over you. You don't have to say yes. That's why Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you will not be, God will not allow you to be tempted more than you can handle, but he will always provide the way of escape. There's always a way out now. We're not enslaved. We don't have to say yes to the sinful, destructive things that tempt us. And when we do fall, which we inevitably will, there's therefore now no condemnation. So now when you fall, when you sin, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you fall, And the devil comes in and he whispers to you, you're a failure. God doesn't love you. You're worthless. You are that sin that you just committed. There's no way out of that. You can say, no, that's a lie. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he disarmed you. You have no power here. And you can walk free. You can walk confident knowing that there's no condemnation. The cross disarmed the enemy And the last thing that Jesus points our attention to is that the cross draws us to God. Look at this beautiful verse, verse 32. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When I am lifted up from the earth. So the job, the task, the mission of every single follower of Jesus is to lift up 
the name of Jesus, to exalt and to glorify the name of Jesus with how we live, with how we speak, with how we preach, with how we do everything to lift up the name of Jesus, to point to him how good and how glorious and wonderful he is. But Jesus is actually being specific here. Because look at verse 33. John gives this commentary. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus is specifically in his lifting up He's talking about being lifted up on the cross, lifted up in his death. Jesus is saying that as I'm lifted up in crucifixion on the cross, that is how I will draw all people to myself, which seems kind of contradictory. How does a crucified man draw all people to himself? This is another paradox that where the enemy thought this was the ultimate shame of Jesus and his defeat, Jesus is saying, nope, this is actually how I'm going to draw the world to myself in love. And this is why over and over again, as the church, we try to focus in and come back to constantly, not just the life of Jesus, but the cross. This is why this is the cross is the symbol of Christianity because we are cross-centered people. This is why we don't just lift up Jesus and tell people that Jesus will make your life better and give you more fun and uh, give you more money and make you better and all this stuff. We don't just tell people he's a good moral teacher and an ethical man, a good leader, a good set of morals for us to follow because there's ultimately no power to save and to transform in that message. Those things might be true. They are true. But the power to save and to transform, Jesus just said, the power to draw all people to myself is in my body lifted up on the cross. That is why we point again and again to the cross. How does this happen? How does Jesus draw people to himself by his bloody, grisly crucifixion? I think it is because we can only really see and understand and grasp and be gripped and captivated and blown away by who God actually is, his character, his power, his justice, his mercy, his love, when we look at the cross. That is the ultimate picture among all the other things that Jesus does and that he is. The ultimate picture of God's character and the love of Jesus is displayed in the cross. Because why? Why? Look at this love. Look at the cross. Look at this kind of love. We can't even fathom this kind of love. Love that made God put on a human body And come to his people. Love that made God himself endure being whipped and scourged and beaten and spat on and stabbed. Love that made God himself carry a wooden cross up a hill to have spikes driven, nailed through the medial nerves of his ankles and his wrists to be lifted up on a tree that he himself created. And to suffocate in his own blood as he struggles to draw breath for hours. Love that moved God himself, Jesus himself, to become sin. To absorb the sin and the evil and the wickedness of all mankind in himself. And endure the full wrath of God against that sin and evil and wickedness. To have the Father's face turn away even though he is perfect and holy and righteous. To be separate from his Father in that moment. Love that made God do that. Love that knows no boundaries. All people, I will draw all people to myself. This is love that knows no language or culture or race or color or creed. Love that says whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever you have done, whatever you will do, 
however far gone you think you are, whatever you're walking through right now, come, come to me. Come and be forgiven. Come and be saved. Come and be healed. Come and be whole. Come and find life. Come to me. How can we not be drawn in by that kind of love? That's insane. That's so beautiful. That is the glory of God displayed in the cross. That is why the cross draws all people to himself. Look at that display of love. Man, some of us in here, we might be, uh, we might, I think we come in here feeling like a bit of an imposter. We feel like we don't, we haven't been around the Christian stuff. We haven't been around the church. Maybe somebody dragged us here. Maybe we're just like trying to figure it all out. And we don't know the language. We don't know the lingo. We're like, what is communion? What is worship? What is fellowship? What are we, hobbits? What is this, Middle Earth fellowship? Right, we don't understand like the church stuff, the church lingo, but you've been in here and you've been listening and you start to see Jesus and there's something about Jesus. You start to hear and to see his cross, what he did for you, how much he loves you and it starts to draw you in. And I've seen this time and time again. I think of uh, one of my good buddies in Sydney when I was uh, working for my church there and he's a personal trainer at the gym that I was at and uh, we were working out together and it was Sunday night. We did a Sunday night service and uh, one time, I, you know, we finished up our workout and I was getting ready to go and he's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to church. And he's like, oh, church. Okay, can I come? I was like, yeah, dude, come along. That's awesome. Yeah, sure. I didn't have to invite you. Come along to church. And we walk there and we get in there and we, we walk in the doors and we sit down and, you know, music starts playing and Bibles are opened up and my buddy like kind of nudges me and he's like, mate, is this actually church? I was like, yeah. He's like, I thought you were being cheeky. I thought we were going to the strip club. <laughs> and so he came thought, thinking we were going to the strip club. But he stayed. And he came back next week. And the week after that, and the week after that, and the week after that, because he started to fall in love with Jesus. Because he heard the gospel. He heard about how much God loves him. He heard about what Jesus did for him. His life poured out on the cross for him. And he fell in love with Jesus. That's what happens. He draws us in with the power of the cross. His love displayed in his lifting up. This kind of love that we can't even fathom. And even as believers, man, when you're in sin, when you're struggling, when you're going through it and you feel like garbage because of how you're living or how you're doing or you're running away from the Lord and man, we, we do what Adam and Eve did right from the beginning, right? We run and hide because we think that's what we need to do. God's ashamed of us. God's mad at us. Jesus, lift it up. I will draw all people to myself. Go to him. He's saying, come to me. All who are weary, I'll give you rest for your tired soul. Go to him. Lay your sin at his feet. He wants you to come. And the people are confused when they hear Jesus say this. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So they're confused because Jesus just explained to them that he's gonna be lifted up and give his life on the cross. And they're saying, well, we know that the son of man is supposed to live forever. The Christ is supposed to live forever. But their idea, like Lee explained last week, their idea of the Christ, the Messiah, was this 
uh, military ruler who was going to roll in on a white horse with a sword and overthrow the Roman Empire. And Jesus is saying, I'm a different kind of king. And I came not to overthrow the Roman rule that you think is your ultimate oppression. I came to take care of the enemy that's actually the real and deeper and more serious enemy of your soul, which is your sin. And that's what I came to do on the cross, lifted up. I'm a crucified and risen, conquering savior who conquered and disarmed the enemy of your soul. And look at these beautiful finishing words of Jesus as we wrap up here. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Just let this hit you. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Look at that order. Don't get this twisted. Believe that you may become. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. How do we receive these effects, these beautiful, glorious effects of the cross of Jesus? How do these things become reality in our lives? Believe. Trust your heart. Trust your life. Trust your future into the hands of Jesus. Believe in him. And then become, then enter in this invitation of Jesus into a life of becoming, a life of discipleship, a life of becoming in practice who we already are in position. You're a saved son and a daughter of God, no condemnation, walk free. And now enter into this process of drawing near to the light, being filled with the light, And having that light pour out of you as you become and look more and more and more like Jesus Christ every single day by the power of his Holy Spirit working through you. Believe and then become. We are all being formed. Every moment of every day, we're being formed by what we take in. We're being formed by the thoughts that we let dwell in our minds. We're being formed by the words that we take in and the words that we speak. We're being formed by our habits by our disciplines. What is forming you? Jesus is saying, draw near to the light. This is so beautiful because John started his gospel by saying, the light of man is about to come. And then Jesus finishes his last public sermon by saying, the light is here. Choose, choose the light. Choose to be formed by the light. Choose to believe in the light. Choose to walk in the light. Choose to take up the mantle of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the invitation to enter into that. And so I'm just going to get us to do something. As the, the band comes up and we worship and we take communion together, can we just close our eyes and bow our heads together, guys? Jesus makes this really personal. And so I want to make it personal for us and just ask the question, what is your next step? What's your next step of discipleship? For some of us, that might be, you've been here, you've been hearing about Jesus for a while, you've been hearing about his cross, you've been hearing about who he is and what he's done for you, and you feel him start to draw you. He's starting to draw you to himself. You're attracted to him. 
You start to feel your heart pulled in, and for you, that step might be this urgent, loving invitation of Jesus to believe, to step over that line of faith. Even though you don't have it all figured out, you don't know everything, you don't need to. Step one is believe. Believe that he loves you, that he came, that he lived a perfect life for you, that he died on the cross for you, and that he wants to give you a new heart and pour his spirit into you and transform you and change you into the person that he created you and calls you to be. And so if that's your reality this morning, just pray that prayer. Say, God, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's Lord and that he is Savior And I want to invite him into my heart. I want him to come into my life and to change me, to give me new life, to forgive my sins. I want to come out from judgment and step into life. And God, will you just give me your spirit, give me your heart. And I want to live for you. I want to lift up your glory with my life. For some of us, our next step of discipleship might be you're being called to step up and serve. You're being called to Maybe come back to God. Maybe you've been wandering, you've been running away, living a life, a double life that doesn't line up with who you claim to be. And he's calling you back. He's drawing you to himself. Come to me. Walk with me. Walk in step with the Spirit again. Be filled with the Spirit again. Live for my glory again. Just invite him back in. Say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to live for your glory and not my own. It might be sin that you're wrestling with, that you've got you to gotta just claim the promise of God, that he has disarmed the enemy, that his blood has broken the chains of slavery, of sin and death over you. Maybe you've been listening to the condemning false word of the enemy whispering in your ear that you're nothing, that you are your sin. And you just need to claim again the promises of God that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring a word of condemnation against us? Nobody. It might be other things, whatever it is, just as we worship, as we reflect on the cross in communion, as we lift the name of Jesus high in worship, would you speak to him? Would you have an open ear, an open mind, an open heart to hear from him in this time? Lord Jesus, we thank you. And I pray simply now, Lord, that the cry of our hearts and the prayer of our lives each day would echo that of your son, Father Be glorified in all that we do, in our highs, our lows, our joys, our pain, our work, our play, everything. Father, be glorified. Would you do this work among us by the power of your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.